Warren, uh, welcome to the Evolve and Play podcast again. Um, we got this chance to speak, uh, I guess, a month and a half ago, and we had a, a kind of time compressed, so we didn't get through quite as much as we wanted. So now we're going to be able to get back to it. Um, I've read all of, uh, or almost all of the the Boy Crisis, and I've been working my way through uh, the myth of male privilege and thinking about the topics that we we spoke about last time. I think a really interesting place would just be to to talk about this idea of the myth of male privilege, right? That's a, a very predominant idea within our society, and I think you make some very strong objections to it in that book. Um, and I think it leads into some of the questions that we were discussing last time about what is a kind of aspirational masculinity and how does it interact with the sort of constraints of nature versus the unique opportunities of the culture that we currently live in. So can you lay out the the, the case for why you wrote that book, The Myth of Male Privilege, and, and, and what that means? Yes, and actually the title of the book is The Myth of Male Power. Oh, myth um, of male. But um, but in the book, in the myth of male power, I took about, talk about the myth of male privilege, okay. and so both are true. The and and what I'll, I'm now going to be revising that book that came out in 1983, mm -hmm. um, and I'll be revising that book. Um, I, I just finished a book. I'm just finishing a book today, actually. Okay. Um, role, role mate to soulmate, and that's a book on couples communication and uh, and also bridging the war between civil, what I call the civil war and civil dialogue. Um, but the, but then then I'll be changing the the new updated version of the myth of male power will be called the paradox of male power, mm. um, and like looking that. at, and so what I'm sort of saying in both the paradox of male power and the, the myth of male power is that yes you know many women can look at men and say you know most of the all the presidents of the United States and you know the Supreme Court justices and the you know the the the, the CEOs the major leaders outside of the home have been for the most part men and from a perspective of a woman wanting to climb that ladder and she wishes to do that that means um, men have the power but from the perspective of a man um, that that he doesn't even know how to articulate um, he learns that. Um, if he doesn't earn money, um, he will never find love. Um, my father even told me when I was in high school, and it appeared to some people that I was a decent writer, he just warned me, you know, don't um, be careful about becoming, he didn't say be careful, he said don't become a writer, because if you, um, only about one in a hundred writers um, get published, and if you can't find a publisher, you'll never find a wife. Yeah. And so the, um, what he understood and what, you know, many, and I just you know, talked to um, a man in my men's group today, and he was saying um, that his son, um, who is now about 28, um, you know, he's working hard to do as much as he can to earn money because he tells his dad, um, you know, women don't want a man who doesn't earn money, especially if they're planning to have a child. So what appeared to be power to women from a man's perspective was feeling obligated to earn money that oftentimes someone else would spend while he would die sooner. Mm -hmm. And that's not a good definition of power. And that's not a good definition of privilege. And so, so oftentimes when, you know, in the, my workshops, when I ask 
um, men and women to to think about what their the glint in their father's eye was. Um, first of all, almost nobody even has a clue as to what the glint in their father's eye was. So I have to put them through a whole meditation in which they you know they take themselves to maybe um, pictures that they saw of their father when he was first married or. Um, memories of the fact that maybe the father sang in a choir or did some poetry for mom or had some, you know, or had some old uh, pictures of art or did some act acting um, in high school or college. And the um, and so they're ultimately able to identify some glint in their father's eye. Sometimes it's them playing the, the dad playing with the grandchildren. And seeing the dad really happy, and you know the the the, def, the definition of glint is where the father just feels like totally relaxed, no obligation to tell the child, you know, you should do this better, you should do this differently. Just sort of feel it, you know, just the love comes out, and the love for it comes out, like being an actor, writer, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, an artist, and so on, and or a musician. And most of the people, you know, a very high percentage of people do say one of those artsy types of, of things like, you know, like I did with my dad. And the um, and then I say, well, then imagine your mom and dad um, contemplating having their first child. And when they did that, they started to think about where, what, what path is likely to make a predictable source of income that, um, and the word predictable is important, that will be able to handle the emergencies of life, the COVIDs of life, the um, your your son or daughter having a special um, problem like needing orthodontic work or you know or so on, and, um, and being able to buy a home in a good neighborhood with the best schools. Um, contemplate what it would have cost them to do that, or, um, and to be not just to be able to do it predictably, but to be able to do it with great amounts of security that things will go wrong that you can't didn't anticipate and they think about that and almost no one believes that if that conversation was held by mom and dad that they would have come to the conclusion that what the father was making as a, a musician doing some gigs or art and so on would have fit the bill um, so that basically he, he would have had to give up the glint in his eye to do what he felt he needed to do to be able to provide opportunities and outcomes for his children that he no longer felt he could expect of himself. That even if he felt that when he was in his 20s, he now had to give that up. So when we look at the pay gap between men and women, um, we often, the, the, from a feminist perspective, the pay gap is evidence of a man having male power. But the pay gap, when I did the book, uh, Why Men Earn More, on the pay gap, what I found there was that was that there were 25 differences between uh, what men do in the workplace versus what women do. And every one of those differences led to men earning more money, but, and all, but they also led to women having a more balanced life. And if you ask people, what is a definition of real power? It's having a balanced life that is really more, um, usually more appealing to people. And so, um, and so, for example, um, I know many, uh, I, in one of my men's groups, I had a, there was a man who was just 
absolutely had been absolutely devoted to being an elementary school teacher and he loved kids. But when he had children of his own, he had to, uh, he knew that he could earn about twice as much as a principal of a school, but he'd also abhorred um, administrative stuff. And, you know, and having to, uh, that was not his passion at all. Um, but he had to give up being a uh, elementary school teacher uh, because it paid about twice as much and he worked about twice as hard and he worked at things he hated. So from a feminist perspective, uh-huh, there's more females in the school system, but who are the ones that are the principals and the superintendents of schools? It is still disproportionately males. And so the feminist looks at that and says, therefore, men have the power. And what I what I learned from you know, doing hundreds of men's and women's groups is that when you talk to people about what their passions are, uh, that forfeiting their passions is not male privilege. That's male obligation and male responsibility, and therefore not really male power. Um, it is you know what he does to, as I said, earn money that somebody else spends that he did while he dies sooner. Yeah. And so the myth, the myth of male power sort of takes that to on a personal level, on a political level, on a legislative level. Um, on, you know, it, it takes you through every aspect of life and and explains why um, why that's not a, a productive way of looking at men's um, lives unless you have a desire to be angry at men and say that you're a victim. So what I heard there was that, uh, you know, looking specifically at the wage gap as an, an example, the wage gap arises um, at least to a significant degree in the expectation that both men and women carry that a man will be oriented towards financial contributions in the formation of a family in a way that there isn't the same level of expectation for women. And this actually isn't necessarily what um, is most rewarding for men. Well, yes. So A, well said. Mm -hmm. And B, let's, let's even dig deeper into that. So most feminists say that you know men earn a dollar for each you know eighty two cents or whatever that that men uh, that women earn, and that's very deceptive. Yeah. Here is what is more here is what is more accurate um, that fathers earn about a dollar for each eighty two cents that women earn, but not for the same work mm -hmm. for. 25 different measures so women so what i was just talking about was that that father that you know feels now that he doesn't have the option to be an elementary school teacher or a musician artist writer thinker you know the great many in los angeles you know pretty much every actor has the same name waiter and the, yeah. um, and it's you know and that's um and so the so the so it's when he becomes a father that he tends to increase his hours at work. She tends to decrease her hours. When she, he becomes a father, she usually makes three choices. Option one is to work full-time. Option two is to work part-time. Option three is to stay at home with the children. Now, 40% of mothers uh, that have fathers in their lives, um, they, um, they, they, are, they work full-time. 40% uh, work um, outside the um, uh, work full time in the home, and about twenty percent work part time. However, 
among the ones that work full-time. So it sounds like, well, those should be earning equal to the male. Um, but when a man and a woman have children, what happens is that, the, that full-time by the U.S. Bureau of Labor uh, is considered 35 hours a week or more. And women work about 30, women who have children work about 35 and a half hours a week on average. Uh, so they just make it into the full-time category. Whereas men, once they have children, are much more likely to work 45, 50 hours a week. Now, anyone who works 45 hours a week makes on average about twice what anyone, male or female, who works 35 hours a week earns. Very few people know that. Yeah. Um, that that is so that the increased number of hours um, is very disproportionate to the amount of money you earn. You you earn a lot more working 20, 30% more. Mm-hmm. Um, and because you then become at the, you know, you, you've then become among the more valued people in the company that can be depended upon and develop the greatest amount of expertises and so on. So that's just one example of, of that difference in the pay gap. The other is that once men and women have children, uh, women are more likely to cut back, not only cut back on their work, but to choose work that's closer to home so that they can, in the case of an emergency or whatever, they can prioritize and be home with the children full-time. Men do just the opposite. They tend to choose work that will give them the highest pay, which often means if they live in a suburbs, for example, commuting to the city um, and getting the high, the high pay there and then getting home later, et cetera. And so looking, and there's about 22 other differences between, so I'll give another example. Uh, male doctors earn more than female doctors. Sometimes feminists will use them now, not a lot more, but about nine, you know, 90, a dollar to every 92 cents or so. Um, so feminists will look at that and say, aha, even among the same, you know, the same work, uh, men earn more. Not true. What is true is that that male doctor is far more likely to be a surgeon um, or some type of um, uh, doctor that is uh, at a higher level of um, expertise and has a great many more years of training and therefore work and tuition that he paid uh, to become that surgeon. Um, and the woman is much more likely to be, uh, be a general practitioner. Now, um, and then when you, when, but when you take two general practitioners who work the same number of hours, um, and have the same number of years of background and have the same number of advanced degrees um, in the same area, that's when you find that men only earn about a dollar for each 99 cents or so that the female doctor earns. Yeah. When you look at that, when you look at that more closely, you find that's because the female doctor is more likely to work in an HMO with controlled hours, the male doctor in private practice. And so yeah. when you control for all those variables, then you find that it's probably true. I'm not 100% sure of this, but if I had to give a you know a, a significant amount of money bet, it would be that women earn slightly more than men do for the same work, and and the, and the reason for that is because there's so many more like in many of the in the high paying fields like the STEM professions, there's so many more scholarships being given to women in in these in these fields, and the, and there's more um, if you have a 90% engineering company, you're likely to give women a real incentive to be hired by you by paying them extra or giving them extra opportunities. So um, 
I've done a fair amount of research on this. It's kind of a, a an area <laughs> of discussion with my wife, right? Where we we see <laughs> I think for the most part, uh, there isn't a real wage gap to speak of. Um, like when we, uh, as you said, uh, you know, I guess eighty-two cents or seventy cents, seven cents on the dollar, supposedly what what that is. My understanding is that calculation is like looking at basically all men and all women across all the generations and averaging out their income over their lifespan, not controlling for the amount of hours that they actually work. So women earn 77% or 82% of what men earn in a life or uh, in their life up to this point. And then when you, when you, um, uh, but then when you control for how many hours worked, some of that goes away when you control for, uh, for risk of death, which uh, you know, is something you talk a lot about in the book, men, um, you know, much riskier, riskier, uh, riskier tasks. And I, I want to come back to that in a moment. And then when you control for, you know, specializations or majors or types of careers sought, right? You engineer, people who major in engineering are much more likely to be male. People who uh, in, uh, major in gender studies are much more likely to fe be female. And those have very different career outcomes. Um, but the, the counterpoint would be that it is the societal expectation that women are the primary child caretakers that is the primary driver of this. If we look only at young women, uh, women before they have children, I believe that now women who, who have not had children actually slightly out earn men who have not had children. But once women, you go ahead, yeah, but once you go into people who have children, uh, now we see that 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 mothers in particular. You know, mothers lose money and fathers, fathers career trajectories tend to improve after having children, female Absolutely. career trajectories tend to, tend to increase as far as their earning potential. Um, and, you know, and the idea is that women are expected in some sense to do the childcare. So even if they have a high powered career, they have to come home and do the second shift, as it were, that men aren't expected to and therefore they're making that those choices not because they're seeking a balanced life but because they're constrained by societal expectation to play the primary chair child caretaker role which prevents them so like um you can think of it the argument would be that this is a motherhood penalty that women in particular face in uh career advancement so what do you what do you make of that argument Yes, so there's two arguments you brought up here. One is the, um, uh, and, and the first I agree with very much, and the second I have a different perspective on. Um, so if you're listening to this and you want a really clear way of understanding uh, the pay gap um, and the amount of hours men and women put in, um, hear this piece of information. Never married women who have never had children have earned more than never married men who have never had children since the 1970s. Uh, so when a woman doesn't have children, oftentimes she, and, and doesn't wish to be married, she begins to focus a great deal on her career. And when men, expect to never have children and don't and not to be married they begin to not worry so much about figuring out how to get a woman's love 
by earning enough money to get a woman's love. Yeah. Um, from a man's perspective, getting a woman's love often means he's got to get his financial act together. So one of the reasons that many throughout all of history, that many of these extremely creative people um, have been, and philosophers have, have been um, never married and never had children, is <laughs> because they could afford to be philosophers. They could afford to be artists. They could afford to not have to worry about earning money. Uh, they only had to sort of support themselves. And even, you know, people that, you know, are very well worshipped, like the Buddha, you know, he just he just he deserted, his, deserted his children. He was a, yeah. a, a deadbeat dad. And, um, but, you know, and, and then could sell the, you know, people on, you know, taking, he had time to develop his wisdom. Um, and so, it, you know, it's that type of thing. So that's, that's the first part. Now on the motherhood obligation there, I feel a little, take, I look at that a little bit differently. So many women say to me, um, you know, it is really unfair. Um, men are, um, they are, you know, they can be have it all men. Uh, they can, you know, they can have a full career. Uh, they can have children. Um, and they, you know, and whereas I, I have to either do, choose between the career or the children, or if I have children, I have to cut back on my career. So I can never really, you know, I can never get to the, you know, the um, break any glass ceilings um, because I'm, you know, pulled to focus on the children. And, you know, they're really upset about that. And, and they expect that I'll have no response to that point. And here is my response to that point, much to the um, disconcerting, <laughs> disconcerted feeling that my, that person saying that might have, um, who is often more happier being a victim than uh, having a solution. And the, uh, is that um, actually you, um, if you as a woman look around and instead of looking for a man that is focused on his career, um, you go to a party and you say, ah, you know, there's a guy that really is listening to women rather than lecturing women. There's a guy who's really soft-spoken and caring and has a sort of almost, you know, a little bit of femininity in his energy, um, but is still, nevertheless, I'm attracted to him if the uh, energy isn't too feminine. And, the, um, and, and, and then instead of waiting for him to come up to ask me out, um, I'm going to approach him. And if he doesn't pursue further, but I'm still interested, I'm going to get his information and I'm going to pursue him. Then you'll you'll be selecting for men who might feel very comfortable about being involved as the primary caretaker. Um, and but uh, but many men don't feel there's even a chance of being respected. And the key word here is respect. If they are the primary caretaker. They fear that, uh, so a woman does have to give a man assurance that if, she, that, that, that she will, that she, if she wishes to be a have-it-all woman and um, be able to focus on breaking glass ceilings, uh, that she should be, that she would, she needs to choose men who are prone to having a desire to raise children full-time. So, if you're a woman listening to this, you say, well, this, how many of men, how many decent men are there out there like that? Well, for the first time in history, the Pew, P-E-W Research Center, which is a liberal uh, research center in general, um, asked all um, men, conservative, liberal, across the board, um, 
if you had children, um, I'm sorry, th these were men who were working full time. So these were not men who were, you know, deadbeats or, you know, not working, et cetera. They asked full time working men, if you had a choice of being full time with your children or working full time, which would you choose? 49% of all men said that they would prefer to be home with the children full time. Hmm. So there's a, the point being that there's a significant number of men who, if they felt a woman desired them for that role and would retain respect for them if they weren't producing a great deal of money, but were doing all the things that we respect women for doing, raising children, there's a lot of men out there willing to do that, but the but that relationship, there's been you know millions of hundreds of thousands of examples of relationships like that. They fall apart if the woman loses respect for the man because he's not earning money. Mm -hmm. And so, um, but on the other hand, if she retains respect and says, "This is allowing me to you know break the glass ceiling and do what I really want to do." Um, and that is my primary passion, but I also have love for children. There's a tends to be a win-win-win situation, win-win-win-win-win, because the mother, if she's motivated by that type of desire, feels she's won on the career end. Um, she has a, a, a good marriage. She's won on that end. And children raised predominantly by single dads do extremely well probably better than any other category, especially when the mother is in their life. Um, and, and, the, and the mothers rarely make the decision to not attend the birthday parties or the special functions. Um, they, they, they rarely put their work, even if they're high, highly powered women, uh, they rarely put their work so much above uh, the presence with their children that they miss the, that, that they miss special occasions or going to a recital or a special opportunity uh, that the that the boy or girl has, and so that's why I say it's a win win win. In those cases, with that attitude, it's a win for the mom, a win for the dad, and um, a win for the child. But there is the, the, the but the big danger is the respect issue, um, and but you know so the couple really has to be. Um, in, in in constant communication about that aspect of it. So what I'm hearing you say is essentially that uh, that to to kind of negotiate past the motherhood penalty as a society, what mm -hmm. we need to do is more effectively reward uh, men who are willing to take on the primary child care, take a role, and uh, for women to begin to value male partners who are willing to take on that role as in the same way that they value male partners who are willing to take on the primary financial role. Yes. And the primary dimension of that is if women value men doing that, yeah. all the problems are, all the problems are solved. A, they'll, they will find those men mm -hmm. and they will respect those men as long as they really do value that uh, contribution. That, that Pew Research study shows that there is a pool of men available who... who yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that for... There's a couple of reasons, right, um, why I have some skepticism, I guess. 
One is that, you know, if you look at the research on male and female personality differences and mm -hmm. preferences, they maximize in the countries with the greatest freedom. So Scandinavia, um, you know, the low freedom. countries, et cetera. So yeah. we see women, you know, the, the biggest personality difference between men and women is interest in people versus interest in things. And that difference tends to maximize when people have greater freedom. So I, there's there's a there's a question for me about whether that expression of freedom is actually lines up well with the intrinsic biology of, of men and women. And then then there's the the physical constraints, right? Like I like, you know, in the last conversation I mentioned that my wife and I have three children. So my mm -hmm. wife worked full time uh through all of all of our children, right? She she did get a pretty generous maternity leave um with each of her uh her kids because she had you know uh, she has a great career um in the tech industry but having been through that process with my wife you know there's there's certain aspects of 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 the biology of child rearing that are just intrinsically create constraints that are more constraining for women than for men and that and, and children themselves seem to express a different preference from uh, for care for men and women is my experience. So first thing is that, you know, pregnancy itself is hard. Mm -hmm. And so that just having to, to be the one who's pregnant already has an impact on, you know, potential career trajectory, even if it's small. Then lactation is a huge constraint, right? Like my wife pumped milk and put it in, you know, all day, she had to go leave her office and find a room in order to pump milk. And then she had to, uh, to freeze the milk and then bring it home. And then, you know, I was working from home. Uh, so I would actually, you know, feed our children, uh, some of the time, or we had a nanny who would feed the child, but that's a, that's actually a lot of logistics. It's very stressful for a woman to have to, uh, go through that process. Um, and we know that, you know, that the mother's milk is really important for children. Yes. Not yes. easy to replace. And then what I noticed with my children is that they have a strong preference for their mother as their primary nurturer, right? And you, you talk about this a lot in um, the boy crisis that the mothers and fathers parent differently. And that that's those styles of parenting. I see it's really, um, um, is really synergistic and it's really important to, to get that synergy right. So if, if one of my kids falls down and skins a knee and my wife is present and I'm present, the child will always run to my wife first. Mm -hmm. Not only will they run to my wife first, if I try to intercede, they will be upset with me for trying to intercede. Now, if their mother isn't there, they will reach out to me, right? They accept me. It's not that I'm not a useful nurturer and I'm not a safe haven for my children. It's just that I'm less good than mom if mom's available. Mm -hmm. Reciprocally, um, if the kid is a lot of energy and they're feeling playful, they'll come and solicit play for me first. Mm -hmm. um, and oftentimes, you know, a week or two or three, three weeks might go by where I'm the only one who's wrestling with the kids. I'm the only one who's helping the kids learn to flip and jump and do all the things that, you know, that, that we do. Um, but if I leave on the road, the kids will be begging my wife to, to wrestle with them right away. Mm -hmm. So the children have, the, the children kind of are telling us 
the type of parents that they want us to be. Yeah, yeah. And my children have expressed to my wife, you know, multiple times that they want her to work less and they don't ask me to do that as much. Yes. And so there's a way in which, um, yeah, I, I joke with my wife that children are the real patriarchy. They are what? The children are the real patriarchy. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes, very well said. That's um, right. Uh, but do dogs and children um, own own the people that appear to own them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and they're and they they enforce social roles. They enforce mm -hmm. social sex roles on their parents. Yes, through their intrinsic preferences, and it, it's. I think that there's there's a there's some wisdom to the children, right? That, that there's mm -hmm. a there's a degree to which they're expressing something that that is intrinsic, right? Um, it, motherhood, as a fundamental aspect of life, is a very evolutionarily long thing, right? As mammals, mm -hmm. that's what makes mammals mammals is that motherhood is a very extended thing. But in most mammal species, males don't contribute to to childcare at all. Human beings mm -hmm. are. The paradox of masculinity is that human beings are the most female-like animal when it comes to childcare yeah. uh, among mammals, yes. and we're also the most female-unlike in the division of labor and in the, mm -hmm. the way in which um, male potential for violent action is very different mm -hmm. from female potential, and that's something that. Um, you, you mentioned that in the book, actually, the, the myth of male power, the idea of men as destroyers of lives versus women as creators of lives. Um, and I actually think that that, that that is really at the fundamental of it from a biological level, right? Uh, um, um, I was reading a book by Abigail Cabell called the, the Genesis of Gender. She says, a woman is the type of human being whose biology is organized around the capacity to bring children into the world or to, to have children. I would say reciprocally, a man is the type of human being who's organized, whose biology is organized around the capacity to take life in order to protect and provide for children. And that's not what most of us do anymore. But the reason that my body is twice the size of my wife's and my shoulders are huge and wide and my brow ridge is heavy and my hands are much bigger and thicker and the bones are far more robust is because for millions of years of our evolution, it was my sex that had to go out and confront large animals. Absolutely. Um, so I was, I was thinking about this as you were talking about. There's, there's a degree to which this. You, you, you mentioned this in, in the myth of male power, the idea of how do we adapt past the biological programming. And I guess my question is, is there a way in which we don't necessarily want to, because that is actually no longer respecting our nature? And how do we find that balance? So tell me a little bit about your thinking around the idea that, yes, we have a biology, but there is this this potential for people to step outside of that, to, to, yeah. <laughs> to reward the caring aspect of men more deeply mm -hmm. as a society. Yeah. 
and why yes. we might want to go in that direction. Yes. Well, first of all, all the number one important thing in biology is adaptation. Yeah. And being able to adapt to what's you know functional for survival. Mm -hmm. So step two is the survival issue. And so adapting to what was necessary for survival was very functional uh, for men to be the ones to kill and be killed and women to be the ones to love and be loved. Mm -hmm. um, and, the, and, and just an aside for a second there, being trained to kill and be killed, I don't call that male privilege in comparison to being trained to love and be loved. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so um, <clears throat> that's one of the reasons that you know, you, we can debate about the word power, but the privilege, it's certainly not um, a, a greater privilege to, <clears throat> to be programmed to be disposable. And yet, in order to survive, we needed to have men be able to um, prevent uh, the Nazis from taking over. Um, and you know, Native Americans needed to, pre to, to prevent um, people like us from taking over. Um, lest they be put on reservations, um, which in the process of not doing that well, uh, they got put on reservations, et cetera. And so the the there is a great deal of so, so something when in the countries where you find really significant change is in the 70, 60, actually 63 largest developed nations um, in which uh, in which the key word is developed. In the, the 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 very def so capitalism produced more developed nations financially, um, but once they became developed financially, uh, and, and that that meant the middle and upper middle class didn't have to focus so much on survival, and once they could focus on something more than survival, then we started beginning to um, offer people choice. Um, we, we wanted them to be able to choose to divorce if they wish to. We wanted them to choose to be able to have children without having a father um, if they wish to. And so there's a lot of value for people having freedom of choice, but there's also a lot of trade-offs. Um, and particularly if, for example, divorce leads to men rarely being or much less likely to be involved with the children, then we have to look at so, uh, and especially also if women having the freedom to raise, to um, have children by themselves without a man or without being married um, leads to the children doing much worse than they do otherwise. And so once we have freedom, if we're going to keep freedom and responsibility hooked into each other, rather than just focusing on freedom, then we need to, then the, ne the next level becomes, all right, if I give the culture that no longer shames women for having children by themselves and without living with a man, um, that the freedom is taken care of. But when, if those children grow up much less successful, productive, happy, more likely to commit suicide, die from drug overdoses, become addicted to video games or porn, um, then we have another issue to look at. As freedom without responsibility, unless we look at that issue, um, and then um, and then with divorces, uh, we have a, a sort of an easier solution within reach, um, which is first of all the solution to divorces is twofold. One is understanding that divorces occur to a large degree because of the inability for men and women to communicate with each other, 
particularly in the area of being able to hear, hear a personal criticism without becoming defensive. So, you know, the last 30 years of my life have been focused on uh, a lot on trying to teach couples how to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. But it's not biologically natural to handle personal criticism without becoming defensive. What is biologically natural is you hear criticism, it's a potential enemy, and therefore it's functional for survival to get up your defenses uh, to kill the enemy uh, rather than be killed by the enemy or alternatively kill the enemy before the enemy kills you. And so that was functional for survival. It's just terrible for love. And so you, uh, and but nobody has taught people how to not do that in a reflexive way, how to not morph their brain so that the response to criticism is the ability to be able to know how to prepare for it and know how to alter the biologically natural mindset of defensiveness and understand it as an opportunity to make your partner feel safer, more loved, and therefore um, more likely to love you more because she or he feels loved more. And so that's, you know, so in the adaptation process, we need to develop adaptive methods that make it better for the woman, better for the man, and better for the children. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're in the process of beginning to do now. Um, but we are doing that very, very slowly. Um, and, and yet it's needed on every level. It's not just the male-female family level, but also obviously the the type of divisiveness in almost in most countries around you know conservatives and liberals and the is is mainly problematic because of the enormous perfection of the inability of conservatives or liberals or people that disagree to even hear each other, no less um, respond with um, compassion. And that's that's I mean that that plays right to the issue of uh, of men and women, right? Because uh, you know, as we've expanded freedom, uh, <laughs> we are you know, if you I think over the last sixty years or so, um, if I remember correctly, like average rates of happiness are going down. And yes. traditionally, women are happier than men. And that gap has been shrinking in precisely the time that, you know, women's lib and, and the sexual liberation movement have been happening. Uh, I don't know if you got a chance to speak with Mary Harrington or Louise Perry at ARC, but, you know, they both. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be doing a podcast with Louise tomorrow. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, but yeah, they, they both talk about that. These, this um, impetus towards freedom hasn't actually necessarily resulted in happiness. And, you know, absolutely correct. And that, oh, I'm sorry, I think I interrupted you there. Continue. Well, it's very interesting to talk to you about this. And then, you know, when I was reading the, the books, um, there's a, uh, there's a sense that, that sometimes what you're saying is women have been given freedom, but men haven't been given reciprocal freedom. Right. Mm -hmm. So you talk about the idea that a woman has three options when she has a child. She can work full time and be a mother. She can work part time and be a mother or she can be a stay at home mom. And a man has three yeah. options. He can work full time. He can work full time or he can work full time. Yeah. And so there's a there's a it feels like there's a focus on this idea of of an asymmetry, which is important. Mm -hmm. um, but I. I've been, my, my thinking has been along the lines of how do we actually synergize 
how men and women work together. That equality isn't necessarily what we need because we're not actually exactly the same. There isn't a symmetry around sexual reproduction. There isn't a symmetry around around uh, temperament, right? I was thinking about, um, you know, what percentage of death deaths in the workplace are male? Ninety three percent. Ninety three percent. Okay, so it's you know. Almost all of them, right? It's, it's, it's a huge number. And if, if we take a kind of um, simply sort of rights-based or, you know, justice-based perspective on that, might you say, well, that's not okay. That's not fair. Mm-hmm. Um, but is the world a better place if 50% of workplace fatalities are female? Mm-hmm. I don't know that it is. I, like, I am... Um, you know, you talk about the idea of, of men as 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 uh, as on um, unpaid bodyguards for women. Once you're in a relationship, you're an unpaid bodyguard for uh, for a woman, and that we you know we take on the risk. Um, and it's like, I, that's true. And I don't I don't actually have the sense that I want that to change in my life. Mm-hmm. Um, what I want is to be respected and acknowledged for playing that role because yeah. I can play that role better than my wife can. Right? If an intruder comes into our home, it is much better if I'm the person who meets that intruder because I have much more physical robustness. Mm-hmm. Right? Literally, if I'm shot with a gun, I'm less likely to die because I have greater muscle mass. It's harder for the bullet to get into my organs. Um, I, I was thinking about what you were you were writing about there about you know all these these death jobs that men do. And I was thinking about my 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 children, my my two daughters and my son. And I was like, my son sort of behaves in a way every day that says, I'm building myself to be the type of human being who can take that if that's mm-hmm. necessary. Mm-hmm. He has this intense drive for physical excellence. He's constant. Yeah. He, he can't not, right? Like if we don't, you know. We reach the end of the day and he hasn't exercised properly. He turns into like this little spazzy kid. He's normally this super easy kid, right? And so mm-hmm. we've been taking to like at the end of the day, if we realize we didn't get him an ex- exercise, he has to go run 20 laps around the yard, around our mm-hmm. cul-de-sac and then come in and do push-ups and pull-ups. And, you know, my daughters are really strong, right? My my uh, my oldest daughter, she's 11 and a half. She can still do five pull-ups, but a couple of years ago, she was doing 11 pull-ups, um, which is, you know, extremely unusually strong. Yeah, um, it's more than, more than I can do. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, she, and she gets upset, right? Why do boys get to be stronger? Why do boys grow bigger? Why do boys do this? Um, and and she she compares herself to her brother and she gets frustrated by the comparison, right? Because she can do five pull-ups and he can do 25 pull-ups. And what I always try to point out to her is like, don't don't compare yourself because one, it's the thief of joy, right? Compare yourself to the appropriate comparison. Compared to all the other 11-year-old girls, how are you doing in your physical development? You're you're the strongest, okay? <laughs> right. Um, but also it's not so much that he has greater genetic potential at this standpoint for strength development. It's he has so much stronger drive to reach for strength. And that's like, if you, if you need someone who's going to be an underwater welder, if you need someone who's going to jump on and and take care of the downed power lines, Mm -hmm. you want someone who has that drive inherently. And I mean, maybe, 
and I think statistically, we know that the majority of those people are going to be men. Absolutely. There, there's. Go ahead. You were going to say. Uh, no, please, please respond. Uh, okay. Yeah. The um, it is very clear that you know. The, I, I think the best thing to illustrate this is you know basically it's it's you know there's a uh, there's a bell curve here mm -hmm. and there's a bell curve here and they overlap. Yeah. Uh, like this, and there's you know there there are men. Who are you know more sensitive than women are, and there and there are women who are stronger than men are, and uh, you can certainly compensate for the difference. But if you're going to take a you know with with equal amounts of training or whatever, um, you know there's clearly um, a, a, a gender a gap between men and women's propensities. Um, the um, and and it's also very but and it's very important to be respectful of the the male that is more of a nurturer connector than a provider protector um, because that nurturer connector can provide provide by being nurturing and connecting um, and and kids in in school um, especially in an era where um, children that grow up in single mother homes in which in the United States just to be aware of this, 41% of children are born to single moms. Mm -hmm. Now, some of them do live with fathers, but the ones that live with fathers, the relationship, um, but are not married, that relationship only lasts on average of four, three and a half years. Um, and so the, and then usually the children feel very, especially the boy, feels very abandoned by the father. Um, because he got he's gotten attached and then he's been abandoned from his perspective, and so um, these. So what I think we constantly need to do in this era of um, of freedom, is, and but in 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 the process of incorporating responsibility, we need to be nurturing and and respectful, and facilitative of every type of male and every type of female. Um, and 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 letting them become the person that they want to be, and, and knowing in the back of our minds that on average the hazardous jobs will be largely jobs um, that are um, you know that are handled by men, um, and that you know that when, when there's a, a war, but you know there's a difference between that and then doing like they're doing in the Ukraine until very recently, which is you know they required every man between the age of um, 16 and 60 um, to um, to be in the uh, in in the war um, and um, and required that of zero women um, and as opposed to in what doing what they're just beginning to do now is at least uh, open up the option for women uh, to participate in in the uh, in the workplace but you know from from many men's perspective the issue is um, it, what's happened in recent years is that the things that men do um, more naturally, like being willing to die in war and be be disposable or be willing to, uh, those have been turned against men instead of being appreciated for it, instead of saying thank you for dying in war. So we we live in every place in the United States was we are living here because um, men died <laughs> um, to 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 be able to get that property for and for negative reasons and positive reasons. Um, you know, we've all lived as we've all been beneficiaries of um, extremely extremely brutal ta tactics. 
But instead of saying to men, thank you for that, and feminists turn around and say, well, you know, men, they cause the wars. Um, you know, that, that's part of toxic masculinity, um, as if we wouldn't have had those wars, or as if if I really didn't believe that I should benefit from, from warlike mentality, I should pretty much move off the face of the earth because there's probably no place on earth that hasn't benefited or suffered um, from warlike mentality. And, and then the men who earn more money, instead of understanding that there is a, that, um, that men have earned more as a result of feeling that women weren't interested in them unless they earned more. And feeling that you know when they weren't um, holding their responsibility unless they gave up their passion and the glint in their eyes. So we called it male privilege and male power rather than male sacrifice and male responsibility. And there's been very little appreciation for men, and and yet the men who are soft and loving and caring, um, they aren't sought out by women and say, "Gee, this is a wonderful, you know, I'm very ambitious. You're very focused on nurturing and caring. We, we'd make a perfect couple." Um, or potentially a perfect couple. Let's check each other out in this way. And so these are the types of things that are missing. Uh, so we, the the big the big mandate for the future is to learn how to adapt so that men we can accept that men and women are fundamentally different for the most part, but that those that aren't um, be acknowledged and and appreciated for the, the contributions that they can make, and that the next question is, under what circumstances do our children benefit most? And what's very clear, you and I met at the ARC, the, the Association, uh, the um, Alliance for Responsible Citizenship, and which is a, 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 a sort of very focused on understanding the value of um, two parents um, raising children. And that is really, you know, that has proven to be um, of enormous value um, because especially if parents engage in what I call checks and balanced parenting, um, recognizing the value of the male contribution and dad style parenting like roughhousing and, and strength building and things like that and teasing um, and, um, you know, and um, playing with the kids. Um, in a way that um, creates greater expectations, greater permission for risk-taking, and yet um, provide uh, provides um, a safety net underneath, that those are really major positive contributions that dads can bring to the parenting process. Uh, yeah, so you, you, you described kind of three things there that I, I think are really, really deep and worth digging into. The first, what, that what I heard was a kind of double bind that has happened for men in our society, which is that we um, that we removed some of the social reward and aspirational value of male typical behavior, mm -hmm. while we haven't then made space for male atypical behavior to actually be rewarded. That it, it's not mm -hmm. showing up. So, so we say to men, if you behave in a traditional way, you're toxic, but if you behave in an untraditional way, you're not dateable. Exactly. And if you, um, yes, exactly. And so many men, you know, I, I remember almost every junior high school and high school boy I talk with um, affirms this. And so I'm, as a <coughs> concrete example, um, about a year ago, I was being interviewed um, on this issue. And we were standing in the middle of a stream in Mill Valley, which is where I live in California. 
and the um, the camera crew was around me um, with that type of bucolic background, and the and um, and I'm talking about exactly you know how boys are feeling in in school that you know they're hearing uh, the future is female, hearing toxic masculinity, they're hearing you know um, th these types of comments, and you know I said I see a guy who looks like he's in maybe freshman sophomore in high school or so. Uh, walking by, and he's taking an interest in all these cameras, and um, and I say, to the surprise of the camera crew, can you come here? I'll tell you what we're doing. And I told him what we were doing, and I said, um, you know, I'm just talking. I'm talking. Can you tell me uh, about what men and boys are experiencing when they're in high school? And he goes, Yeah, yeah, I'll tell you. Um, you know, I hear all the time um, that there's, you know, this about the toxic masculinity that. You know um, that men are the oppressors and women are the oppressed. That we're part of the patriarchy, uh, the whole Barbie scenario—the <laughs> most hateful, misandric movie um, in recent times or in my history—and um, the—and he's just going through one thing after the other without a single bit of prompting from me. I'm really good at asking open-ended questions. What are the things you learn about men and women in high school? Um, and he just launched. Like that, and I said, "Well, uh, you, your, your energy appears to me to be um, heterosexual. Am I correct about that?" And he says, "Yes, yes." Uh, and I go, um, "So, do you date women now?" "Yes, oh yeah, I do." Um, and he was in his sophomore year, and I said, "You know, well, where do you go to school?" And he said, "In an all boys school in mm -hmm. San Francisco." He said, "The message is the same in the all boys school as it is in Tam High, which is a." A school for both boys and girls. And so here, boys in a boys school that people are paying, his parents are paying a lot of extra money to send him to, are nevertheless still learning the messages of this. So I say, do, do you have any problems with the accuracy of those messages? Yeah, it just makes me feel terrible. And so um, you said you're, you're dating a woman. Are you serious about her? And she, he says, yeah. Um, and I don't know that we'll get married, but good is the possibility of it. And so I said, well, when you talk to her about these things, what does she say? Huh, what, what is your name again? Oh yeah, Dr. Farrell. Yeah, I don't talk to her about these things. I said, you mean, so here are these things deep in your heart that you're not sharing with your girlfriend? Why is that? And he goes, because she she's a feminist and she would just, I, that would end the relationship. And I said, you're, you're considering the possibility of getting married to her? Yes, yes. Would you reveal these things to her before you get married and have discussions about them? Oh, maybe, I guess so. But clearly he had never thought of that possibility before, <laughs> that he was just gonna let this, this, you know, this, this repression of feelings. And so here we are talking about the importance of men expressing feelings and we are training men to repress feelings lest they trade off the expression of their feelings with to, for a loss of love. Another double bind. Yeah, it's a real double bind. So that that reminds me that, you know, if you look at Gen Z, you see the largest political differentiation in any group between men and women, right? Mm -hmm. uh, Gen Z men are, are trending more right Gen Z women are the most left-wing group in the electorate um, that we've seen. And so it creates more uh, social pressure on men to not reveal 
what they actually perceive if they want to be successful in dating. The other thing that you, so there's two things that you touched on yeah, uh, in addition to the double bind. What's that that we face? Stop there a little bit quickly, just to add a, a dimension to that, which is, so the men are feeling these things and they're repressing them. Many of these men are sensitive mm -hmm. and yet they find themselves feeling that the only person who has the sense of anger and the sense of feeling that they're being fed misinformation is Donald Trump. But yet many of these sensitive men are almost the opposite of Donald Trump's, but they are able to identify with the the anger that the anger that they feel about not having the left acknowledge them and to keep them in the mind is leading them to somebody who they would not normally be attracted to as a personality. Yeah. And so that's some of the, that's some of the politics that are that are ending up from this. Yeah, or Andrew Tate, or you know, there's a yeah. there's a there's a gap there um, in describing the experiences of young men. Um, so you mentioned, man, there's so much, <laughs> you talk to you for hours. There's so much to, to talk about. Um, there is, you mentioned um, the 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 reality that there are people who are also sex atypical and how our model has to make room for sex atypical people. And then you mentioned also uh, the distinction between dad style parenting and uh, mom style parenting and how that's really important for kids. And that's something I'd, I'd really like to get into. Um, but I've been working on an essay right now called Aspiration, Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, that's the working title right now. But the basic thesis of it is that um, there's something specifically that it means to be a good man and something specifically means to be a good woman. And it has to do with this evolved nature that we have, that we are distinct. Um, and those, those can't, they're not collapsible simply to this category of, of good person, but it's possible to be a very good person and not specifically good at being a man or. No, oh, definitely. Not definitely. And, and vice versa. And being a woman. Um, but without some kind of model that we can aspire to of the goodness specific to our sex, it leaves people uh, very bereft without guidance, right? And then you have a pipeline from, you know, pickup artists to incels to, you know, to, to really dark places. Um, and so I think in most traditional cultures, you have a very strong model of specifically the role of a man and specifically the role of a woman. And very often, uh, the culture can be extremely coercive about that role, right? It can be brutal Absolutely. how you brought into that role. Right? I think in, in one of the books, you talk about how the Maasai um, circumcised boys at 12 years old. And if they cry, they're, you know, they potentially say face social shaming for life. Yes, the inability to to mate. Um, and and so we've used physical force, hazing. Um, we've used the uh, ostracization, right? Obviously, uh, dating and reproduction and social proof. All that stuff is has been used to to help to to push young men to become the type of courageous warriors that the society needed. And then at the same time, you know, you know, a girl who didn't want to be a mother. You know, a lot of times she just didn't have a choice. She was going to be sold off to a man, whatever her 
her preferences were. And once she arrived with the man, often she was going to be um, kind of economically subservient to the matriarch of that man's family. Um, so there, you know, life was brutal for everybody. And in my sense is that we were rightly pushing back on a lot of that brutality, but we've mm -hmm. left people without a template or guideline to be oriented towards. Um, and so we need to switch from a coercive model to an aspirational model, to being able to articulate kind of what, what that looks like. And in particular, I think that paradox that we mentioned earlier of, of males as both, you know, uniquely capable of, of violence and all of the physical attributes and courage and everything that, that happens along with that, but also uniquely capable of being child caretakers. Mm -hmm. um, to me, that's at the heart of like the aspirational masculinity and the unique value that men play as fathers um, and how that plays out in, in, in children. So I'm curious if you have thought along these lines and you know what that brings up for you, this idea of how do we move from a model of, sorry, I'm gonna go back for a second because the model of freedom, right? I think the model of coercion has been replaced with the model of freedom but freedom to what purpose? So many people are ending up with freedom that means spending all their time on video games and pornography, right? Yeah. Spending your time on years of hookup culture and realizing in your thirties that you actually did want to have children in marriage, but that's now much harder to attain mm -hmm. um, because you were told that it didn't matter, right? That your twenties for, were for, for, for having fun. Yeah. And a lot, you know, like, uh, there was a, a, I can't remember the speaker who was pointing this out, but it was, it was a pretty remarkable thing. I think that 80% of women who reach the age of 30 who have not had a child uh, will never have a child. And of those 80%, something like 80% would have liked to have had a child. They want yeah. to. Yes. The, 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 the number of children that women who have children have is the same as it was 50 years ago but we have this huge decline in birth rates and it's driven by women who have no children at all mm -hmm. and the vast majority of the women who have no children actually wanted to be mothers yes yes and then you have another problem within that which is that the that the women who do have children you know that 41 percent of them have children without um a married partner which um you know, and many of those without even a partner um, that they live with, and so and that and and then that leads to the children doing um, better. I, I think that is you know, I, clearly you and I, and I think the great majority of other people, and particularly in developed nations, are very much in favor of forfeiting the coercive model of anything, and we we value freedom. Um, and when we value freedom, the aspirational model is tricky. Um, because there is there is um, there's a fine line and an overlapping gray line between what you aspire for men. If you if you divide aspiration between men and women, uh, then you begin to sort of create social pressure and um, and less appreciation for someone who misses the aspiration. So you and and then and social pressure, as we all know, is extremely powerful as a potential coercive overlap. 
Um, even so, the, the laws may no longer coerce you, uh, but you know most of the um, ability to keep men and women restricted for you know for most of of life came not from laws, but um, even from traditions that were just made it clear from the outset that you had no choice uh, if you were going to be loved by mom, dad, and not be an outcast, uh, et cetera. So I think aspirational model plays in dangerous territory with coercive model, um, although it sounds much better. Um, so, well, Yeah, I mean, for some reason, that reminds me of a Jordan Pearson quote, which is that an ideal is always a judge. Right. Yeah, that, well, that's right. That's, an ideal is always a judge. Absolutely. Yeah, and 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 at, at the same time, I think it's also possible to say more along the lines of what your point I think reaching for is that we do have to understand as part of appreciating each other that there that we have evolved over millions of years, not just as humans but that almost all animals behave enormously similarly to the way that men and women have typically behaved. Um, and, and, that, um, and that with freedom, uh, that so understand that there is a difference between dad-style parenting and mom-style parenting. Um, and so, and don't deny it, um, you know, because the great majority, but on the other hand, there's, you know, there's some, um, women, mothers, who are much better boundary enforcers than dads. But as a rule, dads will be better boundary enforcers. And you could, and then you can go back into history and our biology and, and see why that's the case. Um, and, um, and, but um, that oftentimes with the boundary enforcement, sometimes there's a need for a boundary to not be enforced in a special way at a special time, a special occasion. And so the value of what I call checks and balance parenting needs to be learned, but that's a learning process. There's almost no one that knows the value of what dads do. So, I mean, the, the average dad does not say to a mom, you know, and this is a fact, but never said, is that, the, that roughhousing with my children with boundary enforcement actually leads to the children being more empathetic with each other now so and you know I, i've never heard a dad say we like to you know rough house for the kids it'll be a lot of fun for both of us and also it'll increase their empathy like what <laughs> you know and yet the data shows that um and you know the data shows that you know that that the, that the boundary enforcement with the um um with requiring the children not to hurt each other or do the things that are so um so um, overdone in roughhousing teaches the children to be the, the difference between being assertive versus aggressive. Yeah. And, um, and in the process, thinking of their sisters and brothers, needs and feelings and fears. Um, and so you put all that together and you start having children that are more socially capable, uh, more empathetic, and at the same time, more able to take loss um, and to, you know, and to protect each other. And so, um, but if you know, I don't blame moms for not knowing this because moms can't hear what dads don't say. And I don't blame dads for not knowing this because one of the reasons I wrote the Boy Crisis book was because I couldn't find this information um, in any um, normal parenting magazines or books, even though they were available in scholarly studies. It's I actually think so. I, I'm writing a lot about rough and tumble play right now. We are actually yes. a course on rough and tumble play. Um, 
uh, coming up next month uh, on mm -hmm. how on how we can do it dyadically as adults, how we can do it actually to feed intimate partnerships, and specifically how we can do it with children. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's you know it's it's near and, and dear to my heart. Um, when I was on uh, Jordan Peterson's podcast, though last uh, last March or, or this March, um, I had you know eighty calls, you know, for people who are applying to our retreats in the three weeks after that. Mm -hmm. And one of the most common themes of calls that I got was actually women who had young boys who were very high energy and intense, and who had husbands who were unwilling, unable to roughhouse. Yes. And there is a lot of men who have lost the culture of play. Absolutely. Um, this is kind of one of my big hobby horses is, you know, Jordan, uh, Jonathan Haidt, yourself, other people are saying, like, this is really important. We need to we need to give kids access to free play. Absolutely. What I don't think is fully recognized is that um, good play is a kind of culture that's passed down, ideally mm -hmm. through mixed age child groups and through, mm -hmm. you know, through uh, through fathers right in mm -hmm. particular and that we've lost a lot of that generation to generation transmission and we actually need to like proactively build uh yes. a culture again yes. and okay I, I'll, <laughs> i'm curious for your take on that and then i want to go back to something you said earlier everything i agree with with one sort of caveat the word free before play I think one of the one of the contributions that that play makes is um, like you know when you know uh, you heard me talk about when I was on on this issue with um, my ARC presentation, you know that um, that the mother is looking on the you know the father and going oh my god I feel like I have one more child to monitor you know that he's going to let the kids just you know get hurt and stuff like that and I think when you know when a father says something like. Um, okay, you can you, you can um, use leverage or you can use um, um, trickery to 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 win in the roughhousing, um, but you can't you know put your elbow in your sister's eye, um, and that so play without learning the boundaries that are necessary loses, which is what what free play would imply, um, is not as valuable as um, play that incorporates all of the parenting the, the you know the dad or the mom doing saying that you know let's get let's get really excited let's you know have um all the uh, you know want let let's want let me understand that you want to just push your brother around or put or push you know to, or take advantage of him in order to win and be the the hero of the play um but this is not okay to hurt him or her um, and it's not okay to be aggressive. And here's the difference between being aggressive and versus assertive and, um, and so on. And, that, and so it's that type of the, the enormous learning that comes from roughhousing play and you, you, the word you use in conjunction with it, evolve. The, the, you evolve as a result of knowing how to play in a way that is considerate and kind to others even as it does not take away your energy. And it's that combination that makes the play um, a real um, growth experience, in my opinion. Yeah, so you're, uh, you're pointing to the, the, the reality that we need constraints. And the constraints are actually a lot of what we're learning within play. 
yeah. when I when I use the term free play, um, I'm, I'm referring specifically to the distinction that's made in the play research uh, between play that is directed by adults, like a yes, absolutely, absolutely, it's like pickup games that are played outside. And, you know, what Jonathan Haidt and others have pointed out is that a lot of children's ability to learn to regulate um, their own social interactions arises out of that kind of free play. Um, but I, I take your point that particularly the culture of fatherhood or father style um, mm -hmm. parenting is really good at helping children learn those base constraints that then make them good players in that kind of free play that that all children really need. Yes, I think also that we, you and I need to be encouraging schools um, to to do what I call the in the boy crisis book, the liberal arts of of um, sports. Yeah. And by the liberal arts of sports is I think there's three fundamental types of sports. Uh, one is organized team sports, which have an enormous amount of value in preparing people to be in corporations or in bureaucracies um, and be um, most effective there. Um, then there's also pickup team sports. When I was a kid, um, pickup team sports were the most common type of sports that most people engage in. Today, they're pretty much disappeared. And the um, and and that, that's very important, especially for entrepreneurial preparation, because let's say you and I are on a basketball court and we barely know each other. And um, and we said, so the first decision we have to make is this is this going to be a full court game or a half court game? Um, and then is uh, and then what is, you know, who are uh, who are you, who are you going to choose? Who am I going to choose? Um, and then uh, and then once we choose people, that, especially if we don't know them, um, let's say you and I are on the same team and uh, you say, Warren, pass to me. Um, and, you know, I I pass to you and then your shot is way off. So the next time I don't pass to you. Um, or, you know, you, you, you want, you know, and you learn all these parameters of how to judge somebody, how to choose somebody, how to, how to see under what circumstances um, you can trust the ball going to them. Um, uh, what is, uh, I used to be involved in, in, when I was in, lived in Europe for a while, there was a, a, a group of people that, that literally had fouling practice, which was how to foul and get away with it. Uh -huh. um, and, <laughs> and which I thought of as not very positive as a as a concept, um, but it was you know there was there's so many and then and then the third type of liberal art of of, of sports is um, sports like gymnastics or tennis where you 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 do have a team but your own um, individual discipline is what um, that to make you stand out is what is makes you a, a member of that team, but you're not constantly interacting in the gymnastics or the tennis uh, with other members of the same team. Yeah, yeah, individual. Um, and, and they each have positive, they each yeah. have positive value that, that I think, uh, and then I think also it's really important for schools to not have, to make sure that every single person in the school has every single type of sport available to him or her. Having only varsity sports mm -hmm. um, is really uh, just hurts so many kids. The, the professionalization of, of youth sports is is actually negatively conditioning our kids against uh, physical activity. It's, it's a, it's a yes. brutal problem. Before we, we have about five minutes left before my children charge in the door. Um, uh -huh. So I wanted to go back just briefly 
to you meant you mentioned the importance of dual parent households yes and just before that we were talking about the problem of 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 social pressure as coercion and having an aspirational model and i thought that was an interesting thing to look at because um the the this two-parent household is an ideal right it's an mm -hmm. ideal that uh, produces pressure, social pressure on people to, you know, uh, be more controlled in their sexual experiences, to make different decisions around whether they risk pregnancy, et cetera. Mm -hmm. so I've told my children that um, I expect them um, to not have sex with somebody that they're not willing to raise a child with, mm -hmm. which is very radical compared to the messages that I was raised with. Um, but I think it's actually the most responsible way to think about sexuality. Um, and so we, so we do have the necessity to have an ideal because when we let go of the ideal to, to, to too much of a sort of worship of freedom, then we end up with things like the death of the nuclear family. <laughs> and so I, this is where I think that this is where I'm really interested because, you know, in my work, working with people, right? I'm helping people acquire virtue, helping people become strong, become courageous, even become articulate and capable of speaking. And that starts to aim us to something. And you have to ask what it is that you're aiming at. And what I see with, you know, with young men in particular is that they don't have a clear aim and so we have in some sense sacrificed the center of what of the type of young man who's going to aim at the traditional thing we don't we don't have a model for him right like like my son i think my son's a very typical male individual right um and the culture is not giving him a lot of messages about what a well-developed version of that looks like as an adult. Right. It's giving him a very schizophrenic model of these hyper-masculine caricatures that have zero depth and zero like humanity uh, in superhero movies. Um, and, and then the message that actually masculinity is toxic and all of his intrinsic drive and virtue and emotional containment and stoicism is, is an expression of some past history of, of oppressive tendencies. And so I, I really, really want my son to say it, you know, so we, <laughs> I got him the action Bible recently, which is a, which is an illustrated, uh, it's a graphic novel version of the Bible. He read it in a week, right? 800 pages in a week. And he, wow. read, you know, I asked him last night, um, who, like we started asking him, okay, which was your favorite hero in the Bible? Like David, Samson, Jesus, you know, it's like, oh, maybe, probably Jesus, you know, I don't know. Samson's pretty cool. Um, and then I was like, well, who's your favorite character from Greek mythology? Like Achilles, Odysseus. Like, Odysseus is definitely his guy, right? And he's like, okay, how about Norse mythology? Like, okay, Thor. So I'm giving him, I'm, I'm trying to help him call forth this model that he can look at. For me, it was Aragorn from the Lord of the Rings. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't, I feel like we really served our children poorly. And on the flip side, I also am very sensitive to the reality of sex atypical children, right? 
one of the most kind of my biggest regrets as a coach was I I had a, a young man who was who was one of my students who was sex atypical. He was quite effeminate and he kind of played a class clown role. And he had been one of my students for a while. His family was very involved in our gym and we, he came to a summer camp and he was the youngest child. He was like 11 years old and we had a group of 13 year old boys and the rest of these 13 year old boys were very physical and they started kind of teasing him and pushing him and, and he mm -hmm. responded to it by acting out the class clown role. Um, and I, I actually leaned into the teasing a little bit. And it turned out later that he was actually hurting a lot inside from the, the degree of social pressures he was getting from these older boys. And his mother sent me a really angry letter after this, this thing. And I had to look inside myself and see that there was a little bit of homophobia in me that allowed me to not see this child suffering yeah. and step mm -hmm. up for him. Yes. yes. And my son just walked in the door. So we're out of time. But this, this is at the center for me of the question of how do we continue to make space for the margins mm -hmm. while creating a clear pathway of aspiration for the sex typical as well? Because the model of total freedom is collapsing in a way that's not working for most people. And, you know, we didn't even get into most of the work you've done in the boy crisis, but I think a lot of that actually arises from this inability to speak to the role that fathers play and how they can help discipline children towards growing into an aspirational model. So I'll take your comment there and then we're going to have to end. Well, yeah, I mean, and, um, there's so much complexity in what you say, but the, the two, the two things that I would say, uh, quick things that I hold open for maybe us having a future discussion about is one is the importance of trade-offs and that, that every decision you make, freedom, responsibility, having sex, not having sex, having sex be not until you're ready to have uh, marry that person uh, versus um, not have uh, versus having lots of sexual partners. All of those have trade-offs. Um, and so um, and part of, I think, growing up and learning uh, what what you're about and what decisions you want to make is to having a non-biased discussion of the trade-offs, the trade-offs in relation to your aspirations in life, uh, the trade-offs in relation to who your natural personality is. Um, and, and so that, I think, has to be part of the discussion. And the second is uh, that, that some things we know now work better than others, um, so that we know that children do do better, massively better, on average, by having a mother and father that are married in the family, or alternatively, if there is a divorce, having the mother and father equally involved. Number two, having the mother and father live within about 20 minutes drive time from each other. Number three, that the child um, hears no bad mouthing from mother to father, father to mother. And number four, that the children, that the parents have consistent couples communication um, counseling to be able to work work with the children. It's uh, when I did the research for the boy crisis, I found that those four conditions were the only conditions that I was able to identify that allowed children of divorce to do almost as well as if they had both parents in their in their uh, marriage. Um, but lots more in-depth explanation in, in the boy crisis about that. But that's you know the trade-offs, and and that would be two 
quickie, um, given the fact that it's your your kids have arrived and, yeah. I, have to go, and, and, and I have to go to a doctor's appointment. Okay. So. Thank you so much for Warren. This was a really wonderful conversation and I, I definitely look forward to an ongoing dialogue. Thank you. Be, me with you too. It's just a pleasure. Love the way you think. And as I said last time, you you really ask good questions. You really think about them. You talk about them and then you provide plenty of space uh, for in-depth answers. And I really appreciate that combination. Thank you, Warren.